Redesign Travel is an interview series and podcast where we chat to experts, entrepreneurs, designers, researchers, and travelers of the world to explore how we can reimagine, reinvent, redesign, and regenerate travel. I'm your host, Elena Rodriguez Blanco. Welcome to today's journey. Today, we have architect Oliver Schutte, an expert in sustainable development and construction with more than 20 years of professional experience. After working with globally renowned offices such as Eisenman Architects, as well as the Office for Metropolitan Architecture, Oliver co-founded the interdisciplinary Think and Do Tank, A01, together with Dutch anthropologist Mariah van Litt de Jude. The office is known for developing innovative concepts and projects that are based on participatory design methodologies. Oliver is specialized in bioclimatic, passive, and regenerative design strategies at regional, urban, and architectural scales. Among others, he developed the No Footprint House, a multiple award-winning prefabricated toolbox for integrally sustainable housing. In order to dive deeper into the complex relationships of nature and the built environment, Oliver has also initiated a cross-boundary platform for dialogue called The Nature of Nature. He's the lead investigator of the Sustainable Cities Projects with a company and a foundation, and he's currently developing a manual for the application of nature-based solutions in urban environments. Oliver, it's an honor to have you here. Welcome to Redesign Travel. Hi, Elena. Good to see you. Good to be here with you. Yeah, so tell us, how are you? Where are you? And what is something that you've uh, learned this past uh, year with all this experience that we're all having in 2020 and 2021? Well, that's a complex question to start with. But I am in Costa Rica. I'm basically sitting in front of my house, kind of on the porch. And I am here since more than one year now. And that is probably a time frame I have not spent in one place for a long, long time. So if you ask me about the consequences of COVID and what happened last year, that's probably the biggest consequence for me, like being really locally bound to one place. And that is an interesting experience because when we came here to Costa Rica, we also embraced basically the culture that this country represents in terms of its politics towards nature, trying to find what they call peace with nature, and really defining this kind of symbiosis between humans and nature. And how do we coincide with endemic flora and fauna? And that is something that we totally identified with when we got into Costa Rica, into the idea of living in Costa Rica. And I have to say that like spending this year here now has done us really, really well because uh, we learn to listen outside. We're surrounded by uh, a lot of uh, green here where we live. And we're really like, we dove into this. We really kind of embraced that condition and learn to see the differences in the seasons take it a step down you could say like look at kind of smaller changes instead of just like going from here to other places in the world and really focus on what is going on here and that is something we uh, enjoyed we also had a lot of time I would say to think deeper about certain projects maybe things that you typically don't do when you uh, are in your normal quote-unquote life which we might get back to hopefully not it was a good year for us. I also have to say that our business didn't suffer too much. Uh, we were able to balance well between uh, consultancies 
that uh, kept them coming in. And of course, the construction part suffered a bit because construction industry here was uh, majorly affected by the crisis, by the economic crisis coming with uh, COVID. And also the tourism industry, of course, was totally affected. I mean, it was partial lockdown here for big parts of 2020. And let's say since the end of 2020, when summer kicked back in, it's gotten a little bit uh, better. And now I think we lead a pretty normal life. Uh, again, what is normal, but uh, shops are open, restaurants are open and we can move around. But uh, we're still kind of chewing on what we experienced over the last years. Well, I mean, it was uh, really interesting how how you and I met because I was uh, lucky enough to meet your your no footprint house first. Uh, so one of your your children, your works of art, let's say, and uh, totally fell in love with that concept, and that led me to to meeting you and wanting to get to know more. What brought you to to designing the house the way you did? And I would love to hear a bit more about this the space and yeah, the project itself. And I know it was also like coming from, from more background. So if you could share with us how that started and, and where it's taking you and, and what was the thought process around it? I know that's like four questions in one, but just whatever you want to share about the, the No Footprint House that I also know it's like winning multiple awards. Almost every month I see something coming up with it. So that's very exciting. And I'm so happy that it's getting uh, the recognition it deserves. Great, thank you. I mean. The No Footprint House, when I came to live here in Costa Rica, I was really fascinated by this issue of tropical architecture, which I only knew from books before, from study trips. But living here, we're here since 15 years now, and like understanding this kind of total relationship, absolute relationship of inside and outside spaces, that is something that really amazed me. And of course, I had my heroes also in tropical architecture, mostly actually from South America, also Southeast Asia. But like this whole thing that I learned here about bioclimatic architecture, combining kind of this kind of experience of living inside out, being able with the climate that we have to uh, practically dissolve this kind of thermal barrier that we have in the northern parts of the world. That was something I found really, really exciting. So, you know, we don't need big thermal insulation. We don't need like big insulation glass units and uh, things like that. So we could build very openly. And that's what we did with the No Footprint House. Uh, basically it's a scheme uh, where you have prefabricated modular toolbox, design toolbox as we call it. So you have different kinds of components that the clients can configure according to their needs and taste. And that has to do with the functional relationships of the spaces. And it has to do with the kind of furniture pieces that the clients will pick. And it also has to do with the materialization. And this building that you got to know, she was built basically with a steel structure and a, a pine wood finishes. And it has this very charismatic kind of facade panels that can open up or close down, depending on what the user wants to do with it. If he or she wants privacy, if uh, there's a lot of wind, uh, so you can regulate a lot with this kind of mobile facade panels. And that is something that we did here as a prototype, this building that you saw. And it's a prototype for serial production. So we're now working on putting this concept into serial production. We already got the next clients aligned. And what we also did in the meantime was to develop an alternative uh, wood structural system, which is based on laminated teak wood, which we produce here in Costa Rica. And that is something I'm really, really excited about 
because on the one hand side, uh, it shows me that we can multiply the different kind of material options that we offer to the clients. And I see that we can also drive innovation through the process that we started with the project. And that I think is something very, very important. We did the first with a steel structure because that is like a common material available over here. And like, it was our goal also to make a kind of, yeah, how would I say a kind of reasonable building realization, not something luxurious, but we wanted to build with the locally available material and not get into importing any kind of high tech or materials that we don't over here. Because obviously then your building might have a lower footprint overall, but by adding travel, transport and all that, you blow that footprint again through the roof. So we wanted to be reasonable, build with what we have and what we don't have. We wanted to see what we can do for the future. And the wood system is basically a representation of that. We developed this wood system with a Swiss Costa Rican company that produces uh, teak here in the region. And so we can home grow our structure and that gives us a lot of flexibility. We can use this for the structure of the building and also for the finishes. And that uh, keeps on lowering the footprint significantly. And we had done a life cycle assessment of this prototype that we built and we compared it to the so-called base case. So that's like a normal house of similar size based on the local construction techniques that they typically use here in Costa Rica. And we saw that the prototype was 40% underneath the emissions of the base case. And with the wood structure, we see that we can bring it down to 60%. The prototype of the wood structure is currently under construction. So that'll be 60% less of the emissions compared to the base case. And then we have further improvements planned in the production chain and then further materialization options, uh, which will add another 20% of savings. So we'll be down to 80% from the base case, only 20% of the footprint remaining. And this last 20%, we will not be able to eliminate. I mean, we're not magicians. We're still kind of reasonable constructors over here and designers. And this last 20%, we will basically compensate by the production of local energy and uh, through gardening and uh, forestation processes that can be part of a project. And that also obviously depends according to the needs of the client. The client in the end decides what he or she wants to do. And we can just guide them to, to get to a lower footprint in terms of their impact on the environment with construction. And we also like to think of the no footprint house in relationship to a bigger picture. That is something really, really important for us because we have, as you said, an interdisciplinary firm for urban and rural development. So we're not just looking at construction. It's really important for us to look at the different fields of development, if you want to call it like that. And uh, construction is like one of the things that we look into, but we also look into mobility. We also look into agriculture. We work on uh, master planning processes. And in 2010, we actually drafted the first blueprint for a roadmap to carbon neutrality in Costa Rica. We did that together with a Dutch firm where I worked before, OMA, the Office for Metropolitan Architecture, and their think tank, which is called AMO, Advanced Media Operations. And there we looked into the specific kind of sectors, uh, industry, mobility, agriculture, and construction. And we showed how that can phase out 
carbon emissions until 2021. That was kind of the target at that time. Now we are in 2021. It's actually the 200 year birthday or celebration of independence from Spanish people. I don't want to say occupation. How do you say that? Independence from rain. Spain. <laughs> yes. Independence from the rain. I like that. And that was a very important date at that time. So 2021 was politically, symbolically important and seemed like a good idea. However, like if you do such a huge plan, if you do such a nationwide project, obviously that has a lot of discussion, has a lot of repercussions. And it basically got, as of 2010, into a continuous, we got into a continuous dialogue. The government got into a continuous dialogue with the different entities that represent these sectors that I mentioned. And finally, in 2019, the current national government ratified a final draft for a roadmap, which is called the National Decarbonization Plan, which is targeting now the time frame from 2018 to 2050. And I find that very, very exciting because, you know, Costa Rica is a small country. It's a very small nation. But there's these like key figures, it's like I think it's 0.04% of the land surface of the earth, but it's got about 6% of its biodiversity. So you can imagine what kind of insane density that is here in terms of tropical flora and fauna. We have the diff- we've been here, we've, we've, we have the different microclimates. There are about 14 climatic regions within the country. And that also helps uh, boosting this insane amount of biodiversity, animals, plants uh, growing in the different areas of the country. So why is that happening? Partially because of its location, obviously, because of its natural uh, habitat and location. But the country, the, the, the government, the political representation of Costa Rica, they also really invested in this idea of boosting biodiversity, protecting nature as of the 1950s, which was a very, very, very early point compared to other nations, where Costa Rica started to invest into this idea of protecting its habitat, reforestating, regenerating, also reinvesting parts of its national public budget from basically abandoning, abolishing its army, this country does not have an army. Resources were invested then in education and also in the protection of nature. So I think all this created a very, very interesting case. And all this compared with this uh, culture of peace with nature that I mentioned before is something that we adore, we fell in love with. And I think the results in terms of biodiversity, in terms of the sustainability in application, applied sustainability, That is something that proves that this is a very reasonable way to go and it is possible to go this way and that I find exciting. And also if you look, for example, into politics over the last year, the climate conferences by the United Nations, the Paris conference with the uh, Paris Agreement, which is so important for uh, combating climate change, that was led by a Costa Rican politician, Cristiana Figueres, who was the head of the UNFCCC for many years. And I think that like, you know, Costa Ricans really try to take a leading role there in this issue of combating climate change and protecting nature. That is something I find super inspiring. Wow, you're making me feel like a proud Costa Rican. (laughs) And it's true, it's true. It's true. It's um, and I think I mean from from the things you you shared and also like the vision that you have with your project. I think I think it's so important to have it embedded in a bigger 
in a bigger structure and a bigger ecosystem, right? And working together with all the stakeholders to be able to create that vision. And I think having, uh, like, for example, in your case, example of a house that can actually keep prototyping itself, but also that it's affordable, you know, so that it can be accessible by different people and, and become an example. And another thing I found uh, and I find super interesting about the work that you do is how you involve humans as part of it, right? And, and I think from from the from the house, basically that it's a structure. And of course, we're going to put the link in the podcast so people can actually go check it out. But it's a house that opens up. And I think, uh, especially in a country that has so much biodiversity and so many animals, mosquitoes, and all types of animals, we're always looking at houses as protecting us from or separating us from, from nature and uh, or from danger. And I think it's, it's so interesting to have a concept where it's so open and that it actually makes us feel like we are part of it with the consequences that it has. And once you integrate that, you, you're not afraid anymore. You know, don't feel this, you know, you, you feel this um, unity that is what's actually was probably more meant to be in the way, you know, and the house becomes more like a, like a place of sharing rather than a place of, of separation. So I thought that was that was very unique and also brings a new perspective into how a space can change your mindset and your perspective and make you part of your environment and your surrounding in a very unique uh, way. So that's uh, that's really interesting also from, from your work. And in that sense, I know that you you talk a lot and now you mentioned uh, a lot about like, you know, regeneration in general. And this is a conversation we've been having in this podcast, like, what do we mean by that? Um, how are we applying it in projects? I also know you're participating in, in other projects. So I would love to hear your perspective of like what regenerative design would mean for you and what is kind of like the direction we need to be going with that from what you're seeing. Yeah, great question. I mean, I think the key, the bottom line is what you said in terms of connecting like everything you do to a bigger picture and like see how that can resonate within a network that you're connected to. I always like this this metaphor of the trim tap that Buckminster Fuller created. This trim tap is this little rudder there at the back of a boat, and it's like basically a little mechanism that can steer the whole big ship. And uh, Fuller always pointed out that uh, like if we could be that trim tap, then we could potentially have a lot of power because we could show like how to steer things in a better direction. And when we came here again, like it was like 15 years ago that we started A01, Mariah and I, and like we started at like with the two of us, she's a cultural anthropologist. I'm an architect urbanist by education. And like, it was really interesting to have this kind of shared perspective on development. At that time, when I was coming here to Costa Rica to visit Mariah, she was basically working for the UN before starting A01. And she was working more in rural development at IFAD, that's the International Funds for Agricultural Development by the United Nations. And I was working with OMA, uh, the architecture and urbanism firm from Rotterdam. And we had this kind of like dialogue on what is development? What does development mean in urban areas versus rural areas? And how does urban and rural domain relate over here? Uh, we have this greater metropolitan area, which houses about uh, somewhere between 60 and 70% of the national population. So we're well in a trend there towards mass urbanization that is projected by many different entities. So having this kind of 
number between 60 or 70 percent living in urban areas in Costa Rica we are kind of on the forefront of that trend and it's very interesting to see what happens with this kind of urban environment it's actually more like a urban environment because it is suburbanically growing around uh, formerly rural areas encloses the area these areas so it creates a kind of a new hybrid that is neither urban nor rural so that's what we call this rural kind of hybrid that is the gum and with this, within this kind of condition, which obviously uh, at the same time also accumulates the majority of people, industry, waste, everything that kind of uh, opposes sustainability is very interesting to work in this kind of environment. And we in this context created something that with what we call sustainable innovation or innovative prototyping because we say that there need to be projects that react to the biggest shortcomings of the current condition. Uh, like, for example, we have designed Costa Rica's first urban river park because the rivers in the greater metropolitan area are among the most polluted areas in Latin America. And of course, that is a huge contradiction in these urban or urban areas uh, that we see that also totally contradicts all this kind of like green capital and potential that Costa Rica has built up over the last decades. So we say if we don't manage to 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 access these kind of like main uh, problematics, uh, then it is very hard to talk about sustainability. Also, first, we will need to regenerate because before we can seriously talk about sustainability, because the current situation obviously is not sustainable. And we basically, within this kind of situation that we see, we uh, pick certain topics that we believe are important. So the river contamination is a very important issue for us. Today's World Water Day, uh, what better day to talk about this? Because obviously we are made of water to a big extent and we live with water and from water and we need to protect these resources that we have around us. And here in Costa Rica, as in many other areas or countries as well, like the majority of contamination takes place in the city. We also developed Costa Rica's first public bike system. That's already a while ago. And the No Footprint House will be like this kind of like prototypical uh, prefabricated affordable home. And we're now working on further iterations of the No Footprint House to contextualize that in the city and also build up what we call a No Footprint community. So if you take all these things together, and especially in the urban projects, we work a lot with participatory design processes. It means that we, we are small, but maybe we can be the trim tap. Maybe we can impulse a culture to think more positively and regenerate towards the future and also plug ourselves into processes that are already going on. Through the participatory design methodologies that we develop, where obviously we connect with local governance, we connect with local populations and we connect with local expertise. And that is very, very important. And that's actually a majority of our work, what we spend our time with mapping actors, like seeing whom do you need to make a project successful. The bike system we made with the local municipality and the embassy of the Netherlands and our foundation, because that seemed like a very potent triangle to get this project on route. The river park is also done together with the local municipality and it's financed by the Ministry for Housing and Human Settlements, as they call it over here. And it involves all the neighborhoods, all the populations that live along that park in terms of the design process. We're now developing also recycling and community center on a small island here called, well, it's actually not that small. It's the biggest inhabited island of Costa Rica. 
but overall we could call it small it has a population of 3000 people and it doesn't have any kind of waste system at all so that is something very very important for us to say okay we have this condition what can we do and in the case of chira of the island we were contacted by inhabitants of the island who heard about our work and who said hey like we have this issue here we have this problem and ladies from the island got together in an association called ADATA, Asociación de Damas Trabajando para el Ambiente, ladies working for the environment. And they came up with the idea of creating this recycling center because they said, well, if we want to have a better environment, if maybe we want to attract tourism to the island, if we want to talk about sustainable urban, uh, uh, sustainable tourism, we first need to clean up our island. And that was very interesting. And then we basically engaged one of our university studios and a design and build studio, a process where, again, we work with the local inhabitants that they define also their problems. They help us defining how to tackle the main problems that they have. And then we get the expertise to it. And in the case of Chira, we also organized fundraisers and created a multi-stakeholder approach that also involves local institutions, national institutions, businesses from the construction industry who can donate material. And we also started innovating once again with different materials that were not yet available. So for example, with again, with Novelty, with the wood company, we created a laminated teak floor that was using the scrap pieces from their production, from their plant. With Dos Pinos, the cooperative here for, for, for juices, for milk, uh, kind of the main supplier for drinks in the country, soft drinks, we developed a roof panel that is made from recycled, shredded and recycled Tetra pack. So that became this kind of undulated panel that we put onto the roof of the building. And like this, you show to the people, look, everything that you touch, everything that you do in a relationship of construction, you can do in a different way. And you can support regeneration or sustainability with that process. Mm -hmm. And that became a very interesting learning experience. We learn with every project. The population from Chira learns with it. Our students learned with it. Most of them had never gone to Chira or didn't really know what poverty means in the context of the Gulf of Nicoya, where Chira Island is located. So it was also really strong for them to see, okay, how can we like help this population and how can we help them in a sustainable way? Mm -hmm. And that is also like when we started AZ01, we, we developed this concept of integral sustainability, as we call it, where we have the kind of classic three columns of sustainable development, which is economy, environment, and equity, social equity. And we combine that with a fourth E, which is engineering, because we really believe in this kind of like process of design development, design thinking, and boosting development also through design. And we believe that like everything that you do, every kind of implication of sustainable development that you put into the physical or real world, that uh, needs to have a very good design and engineering solution. And it also needs to stay because if you don't make it well from the start, if you don't develop it well from the engineering point of view, it cannot be sustainable. So yeah. that kind of has become a guiding driving force for us to, to look into this kind of integrality through the interdisciplinary angles that we have with the different professions that are now are part of a one and one thing is also very important, you mentioned that before, is that we on the one hand side uh, look at built solutions or products, let's say, that come out of our work. That is also what we call the hardware in our work. And then we also look strongly at the object in relationship to the subject, the people. 
how do the people work and deal with what we together put into the world? How do they interact with that hardware? And this kind of relationship of the hardware and the software, as we call it, is a kind of key issue. Because I mean, also over the last decades, before we started AV01, we've seen a lot of projects that had a lot of good intention, even an injection, a lot of money, but they were not well calibrated with the people who are the users of the projects in the end that we do. And this kind of relationship of hardware and software, object and subject, people and infrastructure, that is something also very crucial and very important in our work. Great. I mean, it's really inspiring to see how how really that just like breaking the the silos that we usually traditionally work with, not only in terms of the multidisciplinarity, but also involving all the stakeholders so that you know everybody can be part of the design process itself, especially because they usually also have so much to share in terms of, and they also, you also think about it, right? Like even if you're walking down the street and you see something as a user, you're like, oh, maybe this could be different, right? And it's usually, you can't tell to anyone who might actually ever be in the design point of view, uh, listening to the user that's walking through there. So that's really great. And just to like bring it down a bit, and I think you touched upon it, right? So just for the, the listener, because I know we have a couple of listeners that are just interested in regeneration and these topics are like, oh, what do I do now? Or, you know, but if I, if I have my house and I, I don't know, I have a traditional normal house, what is one thing I could look into to make sure that I'm being more sustainable, regenerative from all this uh, research that you've done in the, the zero footprint house, what is actually what's costing more uh, environmentally wise and what is one practice or two that I could um, change today or, or look into transforming at least so that I can be more sustainable if I can't move immediately. <laughs> Yeah, the simple formula, right? I mean, it depends on context a lot. So answering that globally is difficult. Also here, for example, we decided to plug the no footprint house that you have seen into the local electricity grid because electricity here in Costa Rica is uh, produced almost 100% from renewables. So we said, well, uh, solar panels are not being produced in Costa Rica. Why would we import them from the US, from Germany or from China if we have a clean grid here at hand. So that was, for example, one basic decision that we had to do. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, we offered a no footprint house also for off-grid locations so that it can be completely autosufficient. But if you ask me about what can anybody do to improve his or her performance in terms of how to live, then one thing is to check, first of all, on these kind of local conditions. Where is my electricity coming from? Where is my water coming from? Where can I improve? And of course, by now, and again, that depends a lot on the local availability, but overall, globally speaking, we have an incredible surplus or growth of sustainable construction material over the last years, uh, insulation materials, finishes, there's so much that like really we can do. And I think as far as I've learned it, like every local uh, chapter of uh, architecture association, even a lot of Home Depot kind of construction markets by now, they can consult well on sustainability. I mean, it starts with the toilet that uses less water mm -hmm. and it ends with maybe recycling rainwater to flush that toilet. So there's a lot of factors that we can look at. And uh, it depends also a lot if we speak about building from scratch or renovating. And I think we're also working at some, with some projects in Germany right now 
to do this kind of energetic renovation, as they call it. I love that term. And um, it's about like improving the performance of the buildings, right? There's still a lot of building stock from the 19th century that uh, needs to be improved. So we kind of rethink the energy household that these buildings have. How can we improve uh, the performance of the building overall? And uh, of course, there we're looking into completely different parameters compared to building here in the tropics. But again, that is like this kind of adaptability of the concept. Mm -hmm. If you speak about sustainable construction, of course, you can interpret that in the tropics. And of course, you can make a net zero buildings in Germany. So I think this kind of like hmm. application of the bigger idea, that is something uh, very important for all of us. And we can all participate in that. That's a very important point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, for regeneration, one thing that definitely keeps coming back and back and back again is this uh, commitment to place, understanding, you know, and when, when I say place, it's that environment, the not only how the wind moves or where water comes from, but like really also who's surrounding it, what's going on, what's best, right? And even the more sustainable solutions like might be solar panels here in Europe is not the case in Costa Rica. So even like, you know, we, we try to import this type of solution so many times without actually thinking or considering what will be the best option here. And that requires for us to really understand how systems work within the country, what's optimum and how are you yeah how are you best using what's what's around you you know and even older construction methods or you know mud as well as instead of cement and all these things can be very interesting uh, ways of doing and also unique and and I think um, just uh, being able to be creative and then building a beautiful design around it, then uh, they can call you, <laughs> but, but it's possible. And that's, uh, that's what I think um, definitely is uh, the next uh, step towards how we should be living to beautiful uh, regenerative design in that sense. And I think our houses is something that, uh, especially as people are now also moving more rural, especially here in Europe, it's a moment of reflection of how we're doing that and, and when are we doing that. So yeah, great. And I just wanted to ask you one last question that I ask all my guests, which is a little bit, maybe we haven't talked as much about travel, but I always like to ask people what's, what's been a transformative travel experience for them, just so that we could kind of travel vicariously through our guests in this time. And yeah, you could just share briefly, like what was a transformative travel experience for you? And why was well, it transformative? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I said like, over this year in 2020, like it was a transformative experience to not travel. <laughs> so maybe that was to travel within myself, which mm. was transformative in that sense. And I mean, I mentioned Mariah is a cultural anthropologist. She loves traveling. Uh, I love traveling. Actually, we met in a plane. So ah. that probably <laughs> explains well where we like to be. <laughs> And uh, I mean, we've traveled to many places and it really, really is a big part of our lives. And we missed a lot on that in, the, in, the, in this year and the last year. But yeah, I mean, I'm really thinking of this trip into myself. If you ask me for a transformative trip, that is something I would answer to this question now, because it is about seeing what you can do maybe better in terms of how you work, how you live, how you eat, how you move. And, you know, also before we had these like rather insignificant questions, if we pay a little extra tax with the plane to compensate our CO2 emissions or something like that. I mean, you know, 
there's a lot of bullshit in that. And I think if we want to go more real about sustainability and regenerative development, then it really is, this time is a good time to reflect on what we can do better. And I'm not saying that we all need to stay at home and that we should only take cold showers or something like that. You can improve a lot in daily routines. I mean, we, we for example, we have had so many meetings when we drove through this greater metropolitan area that I was describing before that were just redundant, if you think about it. Like you don't need it. So now we do all this online. I don't want to do everything online. I'm also getting tired of it sometimes, but like finding a balance there, what is needed? How do you improve? We improved a lot in baking our own bread. We uh, get a lot of produce here from local producers now because we saw, we met a lot of them and we actually saw what is being produced around us. So if you see all this beauty unfolding uh, all around you and then you don't maybe only think about, oh, where can I make my holiday this year? or how far can I go, uh, then it is also very, very interesting to research more the micro scale. And that has become a really transformative experience for me. Thank you, Oliver. And thank you so much for, for being here, for sharing your thoughts and, and all the amazing work that you do. It's been a pleasure to, to meet you. And, and hopefully maybe we have you on a later date again for further conversations. I think that's something I'm gonna do as well, just to kind of like do a follow-up. So, so yeah, thank you so much Anytime. for coming. <laughs> it was fun thanks for having me hope to see you soon yeah we'll talk soon thank you for joining this episode of redesign travel i hope you learned from the zero footprint house how you can have your own tips and strategies for creating a more bioclimatic passive and regenerative home wherever you are in the world don't forget to subscribe and join us for more interesting conversations on redesigning travel and redesigning life